like I buy that people were incredibly naive about sex at this time, but it's also so that Shonda Rhimes and co can just have like all these scenes of people going, it does what? What, like, (laughs) what is this milky substance? Does that hurt? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Lainey. I'm the editor of LaineyGossip.com. I'm a talk show host and an entertainment reporter in Canada. And my wish for 2021 is not deep. In fact, it's very, it's superficial, it's shallow, and yep, you can drag me for it. I just, I just want to get my nails done again. I'm Duana Taha. I am a television screenwriter and producer. And if I sound happier and more amenable than usual, it's because we are on day four, maybe five, of no construction happening at the house next door. Uh, for the first time in nine months and my bliss is only going to last another couple days and I'm loving it. All right. Today on our final episode of 2020, we, are we Lady Whistledown? <laughs> I, uh, okay. <laughs> we are, uh, we're getting deep into the ton. You have some thoughts about Bridgerton. We have thoughts about Bridgerton. We don't necessarily agree. We don't necessarily disagree. Things are muddy. We're going to find out why and what they are. We also have a list of recommendations by request. What to hear, what to watch, what to read. And finally, we have a surprise email from one of you that should remind you you how awesome you all are that the listeners of this podcast are badass stay tuned for that this is new year's eve show your work okay so you know how like there's what they call people have buying cycles especially now while we're locked in the house you just buy things to amuse yourself yep right like i don't know what cycles like you know, books uh, are constant and then clothes, I don't know, on whatever, however often you feel and so forth. Um, Have you, first of all, do you have a buying cycle? Like what are you browsing at these days? What have you not pulled the trigger on? I, the only, like my one buying cycle is I own so many sets, matching leisure sets. Right. Um, I'm always on the cycle for that now. Okay, amazing. Like, there's nothing that goes by that you're like, I'm not buying that. Yeah, I need another set. I mean, every day I'm just wearing a set. So, you know, it gets dirty. I need more sets. So that's the only buying cycle. I suppose the (laughs) – I mean, if you're looking at my Amazon search – if you must know, nobody wants to know this, but I'd like to share is I, uh, I have like a blister on my foot. And so right now I'm just researching the best foot blister, like ointment. Ointment. (laughs) Cause there's like, there's a Dr. Scholl's thing 
but there are different kinds of like, do you get the Band-Aid? Then there's like a drop uh, and there's a drop that you put on it and then it comes with its own swab. Fuck, there, I didn't know there are this many options and I can't decide. That's my cycle. I'm fucking taking my time figuring out what I should get ordered, like delivered to me. Okay, very good. Um, I like the one that's lingering in my Amazon cart, uh, is a, uh, a bungee cord trampoline, uh, cause apparently that's better than having your trampoline attached by springs. Um, so that's happening. Where but are you going to put the trampoline? Like in the backyard? No, it's like an indoor trampoline. So I have to figure out oh, which. So like the small guys? Like a small guy for working out and bouncing and whatnot. Yeah. Right. But it's not like they're <laughs> that springs give you, you know? What, uh, how does it work with the bungee cord? Well, it's just stretchier. So, like, you go down further with each jog or whatever. So, you have to work harder to like rebound back up. Okay. Like, it's still, it's whatever. I'm thinking about it. I'll, I'll send you a picture. Um, but then last night or the other night, I discovered uh, a new want, maybe. Uh, so I was watching um, Voices of Fire, obviously, the uh, <laughs> which we'll come back to, which for reasons brought me to uh, Googling people from high school, which brought me to this girl that I knew, woman, um, is making incredible, incredible shit with her 3D printer. I did not yet think that we were at like household items for 3D printer. But, you can make guns with 3D printers. Okay. Well, I was going more <laughs> for the like, I'm making a frame for this mirror or picture or uh, I'm going to make like a, a pin like she, like for your jean jacket, like that's made of neon thread. Like it actually lights up. I'm very into this. And I'm like, do I need an, a 3D printer now? Okay, so here's where I'll say, like, now this has turned into a therapy or a psychoanalyst, like a psychoanalysis session where you are crafty with clothes in your MacGyver way, like you'll snip off a sleeve or cut like a new neckline. I can't see you doing a, the three, I don't see you crafty in the 3D printer sense of craftiness. I don't like, you're see not a it. crafter. No, and I'm not, like, I don't have the design brain to, like, make sure that something has structural integrity or whatever, but I love the idea. Like, it, it goes to my um, just instantaneous want, uh, like, want and then have, which I guess is where the MacGyver comes from. Um, it's, imagine just thinking of something and then being like, I'm going to make it. And then an hour later, it's sitting there in your kitchen. I am amazed at the creativity that people have, like, you know, leaned into this year, this wretched 2020, where, you know, we have friends who've always been, you and I have, a, like, a really good friend who's always been into cooking, but now she's doing, like, literally pasta art. It's No, it's amazing. Real. And then the people who are, I also know somebody who started a truffle business, and now she's... She's selling truffles and lots and lots and lots, like over Christmas. And remember, like nine months ago, this was not her job. No, but people now, did not have these businesses. Yes. No, over, over the holidays, she had to make and sell, not had to, like it was amazing, 2,000 truffles. That's amazing. That's spectacular. Um, and I just sort of go like, there are things, like I got a, an amazing print 
that I meant to show you actually for Christmas. Uh, that is, uh, it's from an Etsy artist and it's a still from chewing gum. Um, like, uh, it's Michaela Cole. It's spectacular. It's for my office, but I'm like, eh, I'm going to have to get it framed. And I was like, what if I could 3d print a frame? Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, so if you have a 3d printer, can you please hit me up and tell me, uh, if I need one of these, because I really feel like this, and that would be easy to do. You just plug in, like make me a 12 by 12 frame. Um, so I feel like I might want this, but I, I would love anybody to talk me into or out of it. I'm still not really clear about how they work. Like I imagine, is it like a movie where they, it's it's like when Leia talks to R2-D2 or when Leia talks to, you know, that scene in Star Wars. Yeah, I know what you're, where... yeah, yeah. No, it's not like a hologram. <laughs> how does it work? Like, how does a machine pop out a, a frame? Well, so it's it builds, right? Like, it's think about like an old school dot matrix printer. Remember, it would go like it would do half of your line. Yeah. And you're like, you only did half the words. And then it goes back and, er, 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 yeah. and like three times later, it's printed out your words, right? So it's doing that, but with this thermoplastic, right? So it's building er, 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 the bottom layer of your vase. Then it's getting bigger. Now it knows to go out wider because we're in the middle part How of your vase. How big is it? How big is what? The printer. They have different sizes, but it's like a tabletop item. Like it's, I don't know, it's give or take the size of anywhere from a toaster to a microwave. And there are huge ones, of course, that could print you like a whatever, but the the consumer ones are, yeah, they're loosely shaped like a microwave or a toaster or what whatever. What do they go for? I'm going to Google right now, ballpark. Uh, anywhere from like... Anywhere from like, I don't know, $78 to a few hundred, I think. Okay. I'm looking at one here. It says it's um, 3500 I guess that's like a heavy-duty one. Oh, but there's a $200 one. Okay. Exactly. You know what? The $200 one here on Amazon, I can I can understand how something could come out of it because it yeah. it's like a – it looks like an elevator. <laughs> yes, it does. So yeah, exactly. There's an empty space inside. All right. Right. Well, good luck. Good luck buying your 3D printer to print one frame. I I think, it, but then I could make other stuff. I could make other frames. I could make like, I don't know, a toothbrush cup. I don't know. Okay. I have one idea, but don't limit my creativity. We could, we could go. I feel like Yasik would go crazy over this. Well, look, we're going to need a new hobby for 2021. So maybe this is the new one. All right. Oh, wow. I I just saw another one. Anyway, now you might have gotten me into 3D printers. Yeah. I still have to figure out my new six-piece hairdryer. I got for Christmas that, like, it's a crazy hairdryer where it has, like, six attachments and it's no heat. Like the Dyson one, yes? Yeah, but I, like, now I have to open up the box and read the instructions. (laughs) See, I don't. Always the deterrent for me. I don't do that. I like to just find out as you go. Like well, the instructions not, are no, there for me. You're not going to fuck around with your hair. Of course you are. What's the worst that can happen? That, because like, it's an it automatic dry? thing. No, because it has that thing that like sucks up your hair and I'm not risking it getting caught in some kind of crazy ass wind tunnel and needing to be extracted with scissors. Fuck no. 
I guess that's the difference between you and I. I just don't believe that that would, I don't believe that their product is going to happen because they know people are dumb. Um, so it's like when you read the warnings on something that say, you know, do not use this, I don't know, sled to take flight or on a ski hill or something. And you're like, that's there because some dummy did that. Um, I feel as though, uh, you know, if there was, I, I'm fairly sure it's fairly idiot proof is my pitch. That's my suspe- my suspicion. I, I, there's, there are a few things I take chances with and one of them is my hair. Um, so yes, I will be spending the next few days acclimating myself to the instructions manual um, so that I can at least be in theory an expert before I plug it in. Can't wait. Or just watch. I'm some planning YouTube it videos. for our New Year's Eve party because I'm doing all hair and makeup for our New Year's Eve party. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, are we talking about that? We're we're going a bit different for New Year's Eve this year. We are doing as opposed to our usual virtual board game. We are also going to do um, an escape room, which is super fun and amazing that we can do it remotely and stuff. But you've been organizing it all, which I love, and I love watching you boss people around. I've never played it, so I, what if it's a bust? I'm not sure. It got recommended to me by somebody else. Never played it, but apparently, like, why not? I mean, we're all fucking hanging out on Zoom. No, it sounds great and all, but when you say I'm doing full hair and makeup, I'm like, I need to know what the context of the escape room is to know what outfit I'm putting on, like my costume, my tone. I sent it to you. We're doing Taken One. Okay. All right. I'll I'll I, I'll check it out. I thought you might have more context. Okay. Okay. No, but I'll read it to you. Or did you read it already? I'll read it to everybody else. This is what we're doing on New Year's Eve. Fresh out of the academy, you are a rookie detective. Look there, Duanna. That's your look. Rookie detective, Great. looking Great. to make an impact. You've just been informed a high-ranking UN official has been kidnapped in your hometown and the UN has requested help from local authorities. After a quick briefing from your sergeant, you set out to solve this high-profile case. You know this case could catapult your career. Hey, there's show your work in this too, Duanna. And it's rumored that Interpol will offer a job to the person safely returning the official. Um, we're going to test this out, everybody. I know you're asking, hey, what is this virtual game... We, I'm not going to recommend it till we know what, what the deal is because you have to pay. So we'll check it out. And then on our next podcast, we'll tell you and we'll link to it. Should we be worried about the fact that my boss is sending me, the rookie, out to save somebody from the UN? <laughs> like they don't have anybody better? <laughs> anyway, dress for that or makeup and hair for that. I'm doing my makeup and hair. Great. I think I'm going to be J-Lo in Out of Sight. She I wasn't should... a rookie in that movie, but she was a U.S. Marshal. The first time that I did a, uh, like, this has shades of murder mystery too, right? Yeah. Um, and the first time I did one of those, uh, it was because my uh, my boyfriend in university gave him this one that they'd been given because the box said that in order to play this game, you have to have a lighthearted attitude towards uh, sex, murder, and debauchery. And they were like, well, we don't. Um, so... <laughs> That's what you need to know about uh, my university boyfriend's parents. Well, we will let you know about our escape room virtual online New Year's Eve. um, And you let us know if you've played this before. So shall we begin today's episode? Uh, Yeah. Our final episode of 2020. And like, yeah, because, you know, 
it's interrupting what we would otherwise be doing, right? Which is like lying on the couch. In bed, couch, yes. I mean, I was reminded the other day of what, uh, topically, uh, what Shonda Rhimes calls lying on the couch. Um, She calls it veal practice. When you're just lying there on the couch, like shoving food in, um, just fattening yourself up while making sure you don't build any muscle. Um, veal practice. So yes, you're interrupt. We're interrupting our veal practice through the holidays to come to you and bring you, uh, some thoughts about what everybody's been doing, i.e. binging Bridgerton. Yes. At least, I mean, this is, this is the Netflix annual holiday tradition, I guess, right? Every holiday season, Netflix has one offering that people freak out about. Everybody's watched it's as close to like a collective experience, I guess, as we can have these days. Although I would say that in the year 2020, more of us are watching more of the same things. Like there's more of that. I'm not saying there's ever going to be a return to monoculture, but if there ever was going to be, it would be during 2020 when everybody's watching everything and looking for more things to watch. Well, there's time to catch up, right? Which is nice. Like finally you're like, oh, I can go back and see that thing. Or I can admit to myself that I just don't care and I'm never going to watch that one show. Um, And it feels great, that freedom, doesn't it? Anyhow. Anyhow, so Bridgerton. um, There's, you know, Sarah's done a great review of it and we have had this week features about Bridgerton rolling out on the site, features everywhere online about Bridgerton. But for our purposes, what I wanted to do is talk about the controversial scene that has upset many people in Bridgerton that was taken from the book and modified and play a little game of how would you have done it differently? Right. So we got to go way back into context while somehow protecting spoilers. This is going to be a challenge. Um, So I don't think we should protect spoilers at this point. Okay, well, let's try it. Let's try it this way. There's a duke, um, and he marries uh, Daphne, great name, who uh, then becomes the duchess, right? Right. There's some shenanigans getting them there, but whatever. But he's like, listen, I don't know if we should get married because he says, I can't give you children. Right. Right? And that's a real specific language. Yes. Um, And then, uh, so backstory, he can't give her children. She thinks uh, that he can't physically. Um, There's also a wide swath of people being incredibly, incredibly naive about sex, uh, which like I buy that people were incredibly naive about sex at this time, but it's also so that Shonda Rhimes and co can just have like all these scenes of people going, it does what? (laughs) What? Like, what is this milky substance? Does that hurt? Anyway? Yeah, we're going there. Like, that's where we are. Right. And so, do you want to pick up this story? Yeah. So, the use of the verb can't as opposed to won't is basically what the Duchess takes exception to when she finds out that he most certainly can, but won't. And so, to get revenge on him and to express how disappointed she is that he, in her mind, lied to her. Oh, that's not why I think she did it at all. Oh, this is fascinating. Okay, go on. She, while they're having sex, rolls up over top of him and without his consent, uh, you know, stays on hot top of him until he comes inside of her. 
So, okay. So I firmly disagree on almost all of this. This is fun. So first of all, you have to know that, yeah, so she's naive about sex. They have sex a bunch because honeymoon. Um, and he pulls out every time. But she's so naive that she doesn't know that that's a problem until she figures it out and, like, runs yes. into some service quarters holding a tissue full of cum. Right. Um, great. So, yeah. Then when she stays on top, I think it's too – in my mind, she's testing her theory in the moment. I don't think she's getting revenge or, like, being like, I'm stealing your semen. Um, but in the moment she's testing her theory, like what happens if I stay here and don't let him find a tissue essentially. Right. Yes. Um, I, I would, I like, I mean, there are many ways to interpret her facial expressions, but the bottom line is he's uncomfortable. He gives her enough cues to be like, I don't want this. And she stays on anyway. I don't know if he does. Like, okay. So, okay. I I interrupted I, you, but okay. Okay. I, so, so I guess, I guess, I mean, that's really interesting here because, and I, I we're, I guess, verging into dangerous territory. Are you not reading into, like, this is a consent issue. I understand. I understand why it is seen as a consent issue. So I have not read the books. Um, and you have not read the books or you did? I have not read the books, but I do know that, like, essentially, what happens in the book is, like, I don't know, degrees of bad, so worse. Um, yeah, like, in, yeah. in the books, she is overt about uh, being closer to, uh, I think, your your characterization. And he's right? drunk like in the book. Okay. Um, and yeah. she's like, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm taking this essentially, or like, I'm fuck youing this or whatever, right? It's a, like a conscious premeditated decision, it sounds like, from the book. Fine. Um, and the other thing you need to know before we discuss this more is that he's constantly described as a rake, i.e. he has tons of experience, he fucks everybody in sight, uh, and of course she is a naive virgin who, like, such a naive virgin that, you know, three hours before her wedding night, her mother's like, so there's something called the marital act. Um, from what I've seen, people feel that the ambiguity in the TV episode is better towards not making it seem like such a violation of consent than in the book where it's very overt, right? Right. Um... So, are you, like, here's the big thing to me, though. Like, are we or are we not looking at this through a lens of being set in 1813? Like, I feel like on the one hand, we're talking about 2020 levels of consent and whether that is or isn't okay what she does. But again, she was a naive virgin up till I think the point where this happens this story is like nine days into their marriage and thus nine days into her sex life, right? Yeah. So I'm not excusing per se, but I am wondering, like it seems like we have to judge from one column or the other when we're talking about people's behavior and what they choose. And of course, they're fictional characters. My issue isn't necessarily the scene itself as part of the story. You can put the scene in 
and have all its consent issues and violations, which there are, to be clear. I would like to be clear for the people listening. So that to me, including that scene, is an interesting decision. And I'm not saying I have issues with the inclusion of that scene. I think that where there has been debate and why people are so upset is because when you include that scene in particular with all its consent issues, there was no addressing of it later on. What they did in the story was only focus on why Daphne was mad at the Duke because he too withheld things from her as her husband who is essentially, because he's a rake and has all this experience, was not being forthcoming and honest about, essentially, he's her sex teacher, and right? And, and exactly, yeah. In those yeah. times, yes, uh, for a woman, the man you married actually becomes really your hands-on practical sex teacher. Um, and so as her sex teacher, he kind of fucking omitted a big fucking deal about like how things work. So number one, but they only focused on her sense of betrayal, feeling betrayed by him, and not, they did not bother to address why he would feel betrayed, how she violated his trust, how she did the thing without his consent. And they don't really go there. Right. And I agree with all of that. And I think that, I would argue that probably one of the reasons that they do that, like, spoilers way abound here. Um, I'd argue that one of the reasons why they do that is that we know his backstory in that moment. It's that thing where we, the audience, know more than one of the characters, right? So in that moment, we know that uh, he uh, he had a horrible father, and obviously all fathers in this era want their firstborn sons to themselves uh, have an heir to continue the family line, right? The The family line, legacy, whatever. His father's horrible, so he's like, fuck you, I'm not having a kid, is the backstory to why he says, I can never give you a child. At the time that the controversial scene happens, um, he knows that, we know that, she doesn't know that. So to that end, I think that you're right that they've set it up so that she's going to be more sympathetic that it's okay for her to do so. This is, again, this is my interpretation of the show speaking here, Um, that it's okay because we know that these two have a real connection and that his reasons for not wanting to have a child are born out of like spite and hatred, but now this is a situation of love, et cetera. That's why I think, I don't disagree with you that they never address it from his point of view. Um, But that's where I think the show is coming from in why they don't uh, feel like they have to justify her, if that makes sense, or that it is justified. Well, and I think that now that we have the backstory and we've laid out the situation, I wondered while I was watching this, because otherwise the show is, you know, there are other issues to discuss, but is largely enjoyable, especially at this time of year. But if you're in the writer's room, and you have been in the writer's room, and you're taking from the story, the source material, clearly they looked at the source material, they removed some of the many, many, like, higher degree of, like, controversy 
um, and shitty things that happened in the book and muted some of it for the story. So clearly they do they knew that they were dealing with a problematic scene here. Why not kind of go into it all the way? When you say go into it all the way, like let's just play Barbies with these guys, okay? So um, like – yeah, in the book, from what I understand, it is overt about being a violation. Uh, Daphne or Daphne's inner monologue or whatever is clear about being vengeful or um, what's the word? Like evening the score or whatever, right? And I agree that in the show, they make it more shades of gray. Um, your question is, why don't they, when you say, why don't they go all the way? What do you mean? Or what would you what would you envision? Well, when they're breaking down the story and they're like, "Yeah, what do we do with this scene?" Well, we're going to change, uh, you know, the alcohol that was involved. We're going to, you know, so that it's not so overt to use your word, um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that Simon, the Duke, is uncomfortable with what she's doing. He doesn't give consent to finishing inside of her. Right. And so if you're in the writer's room, you've only gone really halfway in addressing the consent issue. The moment you step into this area, you're like, okay, well, we've just removed the alcohol. That solves everything. When it doesn't. No, and I don't think, this is my opinion, but I don't think that removing the alcohol solves everything. I think it has to do with power though. Like this is where all these writer room things are tricky, right? Because there's, um, so you have source material and you're like, wow, here's some problematic sexual content. Um, in the book, if it's acknowledged as being problematic sexual content, then there's context, right? And so then we know more about these people. The books are also, I think, what, a six series, a, a, a series of six books, a series of eight, eight? or ten books? Yeah. Or, yeah. I think the thing is, to me, when I look at this without having a moral view, I look at the characters and I go, well, this is about power. Until this point, Simon the Duke has all the power and Daphne has none of the power. She is a young, naive uh like naive, right? Like she's a, a, a child, essentially. I think she's supposed to be 20, but like she's, she's got nothing. This is her first point where she takes some power. And again, context matters. We're talking about a society in which young women are essentially bartered and sold to men, uh, sometimes with their own endorsement of, yeah, I'd like to marry this guy, but lots of times not. And we see that over and over in the series up to this point. So if these two are going to be equals, which is what they're selling us, right? They're selling us a Lizzie uh, slash yeah. Mr. Darcy kind of thing. They're equally matched. This is the first time where she is like, I'm going to take some power and I'm going to maybe be a dick about it. No pun intended. Uh, with the understanding and the assumption and the visuals that we've seen that the men in her life have been dicks pretty consistently up till now. So it's like from a story and character point of view, before we get to sexual morality, 
I see why this happens. I see why it happens in the book and or why it happens in the show. We have to get Daphne to be able to play on his level. So that's step one, right? Yeah. From a character development point of view, the fact that she makes a a decision like this, which is controversial and a a mistake, I, I find it interesting. So I would leave the scene itself in. So Uh our question is, to go back to the original exercise, how you address it after. I'm not debating you on why the scene needs to be there. 100% it needs to be there. Addressing it after is what I'm thinking the the show did a shitty job of. Because when you're talking about power and her taking the power, deliberately taking the power in a moment in a society where women don't have power, they ended up addressing it by basically saying, I, but I was mad at you that you lied to me. Right. And that we don't trust yeah. each other. So yeah. That's where I'm trying to focus the conversation. That's where I'm trying to bring it back to. What would you have done? How would you have done it differently after the scene? Right. And I think it's, I appreciate that clarification because there are a lot of people who don't feel the way you do, who just wanted the scene deleted, who just wanted it not included. They had an issue with it in the book. They think it was wrong to put it in the show. Um, and it is for better or for worse. It's the linchpin of the whole thing. Um, how to address it later, uh, is really interesting because one of the, like arguably the bigger, deeper, whatever issue between Simon and Daphne is that she won't show and, or pardon me, he won't show any vulnerability and, uh, like won't tell her why, why he has these reasons, why, whatever, And like, maybe it's a, uh, uh, I guess the question is partly, how would you do it? And the answer is you have them talk about it, but why didn't they? Um, it might be some leftover toxic masculinity, to be honest with you, because this dude is, if you've seen a Shonda Rhimes show, this is not going to be a surprise to you. He's beautiful. He's sexy. He's commanding. He's smoldering. He's an asshole. He's whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether somebody felt that having him say in, you know, in sort of uh, Regency English language, like, I felt violated, I felt like you took my choice away, would make him too vulnerable. Um, And there's another character argument to be had that says that everything we know about Simon is that he doesn't talk about his hurts, he just reacts, right? Like, he's, he took off for... 10, 15, however many years, rather than deal with his shitty father. Um, So there's an argument that could be made that that's why they didn't include it, because that's not his MO. He doesn't talk. Um, But is there a world in which that could have happened? Sure. I buy that. I I buy it too, especially since, you know, the second half of season one is about the two of them really navigating what it means to be married and communicating with each other and having lasting love, like how to actually form a partnership. And so Daphne's violation as a response to her perceived or her perceived sense of betrayal over his omission of sex facts to her is an interesting place to start with this marriage and how they work through that and untangle from that which they get to, uh, whatever, spoiler alert. I mean, this is based on romance novels. There's a happy ending. I don't think that this should be a surprise to anybody. But which they get to in, you know, eventually where they have this talk where, Duane, as you mentioned, Simon's vulnerability, 
he does get to a certain vulnerability when he says to her, like, I don't think I'm good enough for you. That's been my whole thing. You're amazing. Um, you know, the reason I'm holding back is I don't think I'm, you know, I don't think that I'm decent and you're so decent because of his rakish past or whatever. So there is an opportunity in that sense. At least there was an awareness from the writers to want to, you know, put these two together and get them to sort of release um, to the point where they're admitting their flaws, they're, they're coming to the table. But that only leaves that gap in the middle, like in a, in a much bigger sense where in that moment where he's like, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to live up to what you expect of me. Then there's a, but what you did was so wrong. Well, as you're talking and look, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but then I started thinking about something you said earlier about Simon being her sex teacher, right? And how, uh, you know, everything she's learning is from him. And uh, at one point she, uh, maybe in reaction to this, though we don't know it, yells at her mother for not preparing her better, mm -hmm. right? And so knowing that Bridgerton is most likely going to be more than one season, God knows how long we have to wait, but um, I do wonder whether it's more powerful and effective. This is like, halfway showrunner backpedaling, but stay with me. I do wonder if it's more interesting and effective, not if he says it to her, but if she realizes it herself. Oh, that was a violation. Like he's been saying all the way along, like, this is good. That's bad. Put your hand here. Tell me what you're thinking. You know, that kind of business. So um, and it's also like, it's complicated. It's the first time we see her, we see her in the show uh, on top as opposed to not, right? So there's also complicated things about like, are women not supposed to like take control and, and have their own sexual agency or just have it done to them and whatever. But my point is, I wonder if it's more effective, especially if Simon and Daphne do have a real love connection is it more effective and more compelling if we're with Daphne when she realizes it herself, as opposed to when Simon says, oh, and by the way, you hurt me in this way. It's so interesting what you're saying about showrunner backpedaling, because I wonder whether or not they make a point of including it in season two. I bet they will. And look, that's not to say, oh, they always had the plan that it would be in season two. Like, that's not how you do things. Uh, you always have to assume that you may not get a season two, that a million things may happen, blah, blah, blah. So you kind of want to leave it all on the floor. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying, oh, I'm sure that was always their plan at all. But yeah, I think you're right. And I mean, there's another sort of bigger conversation. I, I will stand by, like, I hear you and everybody going, uh, there's no debate here over whether this is consent. But I stand by my saying about, like, we have to see who, like, whose perspective are we in? Are we in his perspective where he knows what's okay and isn't okay? Are we in Daphne's perspective where she really is quite naive? Are we in the omniscient view of Lady Whistledown, who is the uh, the tell all kind of gossip. She's gossip girl, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I think that the show has some problems with its point of view. And I think the other bigger part of not bigger, I don't mean to minimize one over the other, 
but they also have a real muddled racial point of view, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the if you've watched the show, you know it's it's overtly, um, as I say, like er- early 1800s England. Queen Charlotte is a real person, um, and the reason why they explain like how there are black families in the aristocracy is basically that that was a that was a choice of of hers of Queen Charlotte's. Yes. They, they, yeah, I mean, they basically, there's like one scene where they say the fact that Queen Charlotte exists has opened the door for essentially like people like us, black people to also be like aristocratic. Um, And that's like, and apparently in real life, Queen Charlotte was biracial. Um, That is the closest they come to acknowledging the... BIPOC casting, I mean, I mean, we haven't even touched on the colorism at play here. Yeah, there's lots going on. Like, this is not just colorblind casting, right? In the sense that there are, uh, there are people who are black and acknowledged as black, right? And there are people who are white, um, and that's about it as far as characters that we meet. It's not like there are also tons of Asian families and South Asian families. And it's a, you know, it's a just sort of an alternate universe where everybody is, uh, where, you know, everybody is mixing freely, racially. That's not what we're looking at, right? Like no. it's in, it's meant to be deliberate. Um, and, and even yet, the ones who, like even the black families themselves, like, I mean, as many people have already pointed out, um, they are like it's the the colorblind casting is also color preferential casting where many of the speaking roles that do go to black actors, these are not dark skinned black actors. No. And, uh, you know, we get into the show through the eyes of uh, young debutante-esque women. Um, and the only uh, debutante-esque woman of color is, uh, yeah, extremely light-skinned, possibly a biracial person, uh, not just because of the way the actress looks, but because of the family family connection that she has to appear on the show. Uh, But we don't see any young black women uh, who are not... That character is also arguably kind of a villain. Um, And kind of a villain in the same way that we're talking about Daphne having done something villainous here. So, you know, this is a tone that the show is taking, right? Women had maybe only one source of power and it was trapping men through sex. That's the show has not said that in so many words. That's me saying it, but they do kind of hit that several ways and several times. Um, and yeah, there's not, uh, there's not a lot of racial diversity in terms of seeing people of color in all kinds of different roles, but at the same time, they don't address the, Hey, we, uh, you are the Duke and you are, uh, black. And that's very kind of, you know, notable for this reason, which reaches back to print, uh, Queen Charlotte. They don't address it either. Like they're not, they're kind of having a foot in both worlds, which is yeah. kind of your point about the, about the, you know, the scene and it being, it, it, this is the issue, right? It's one thing to have something that is murky, 
But when it's murky and unexplained, it -hmm. implies that people don't know what they think or don't know how to deal with it. Fair? Yeah. And And it's just a little bit lazy, like including that one scene where it's explained about, you know, what her presence, Queen Charlotte's presence means to so many other people and then not and then just leaving it there as like a catch-all for everything. Um, well, I mean, it would be a great opportunity then if we're talking about Simon's vulnerability to talk about like what that vow he made on his father's deathbed really meant, not just for his father's ego, but for like the entire seat or whatever of Hastings, right? The reason why his father then would have wanted to continue this bloodline is for reasons that Queen Charlotte opened up and uh, opportunities that are may not have been there otherwise. I mean, it just, it, it, it's just sitting there. It, it just sits there and like doesn't go anywhere. Right. And um, obviously this part of the storyline is newly invented, i.e. it's not in the books. The books are not written for a colorblind or biracial cast. This is not a thing. So yeah, it's kind of left there to be semi-implied, but not really discussed. And it it's unfortunate because I think a lot of people, ourselves included, are looking for like a reason, uh, a why. But frankly, there is no, like there's no time limits on Netflix. The episodes can be as long as they want. Um, it doesn't take us out of anything if you build us more mythology. Uh, it ha- it feels as though the, and you know, it's not as though you can think, oh, they just didn't think of it when they overtly have, you know, uh, black people in, again, sort of, uh, you know, 18th century England clothing and, uh, and mores and styles and things that are, uh, is anachronistic the right word in this context? I don't know. Well, the music is already anachronistic, right? Like you're it's playing sure. with so much already. That, yeah, it feels like an, a naked omission and not one that is like an overlooking, right? It yeah. can't, nobody can look at this show and go, oh, they forgot to deal with it. But I do think that, you know, listen, that's not to say that I didn't find Bridgerton highly enjoyable. I enjoyed it over 24 hours, like consecutively. So clearly it was enjoyable to me. But I think the place where we find ourselves right now where Bridgerton is concerned is that as a descendant of, say, Hamilton... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, where Hamilton didn't need to, Hamilton, because it was sold as an immigrant story, didn't need to go around explaining why people were cast the way that they were cast and why the casting was specifically the way it was specified. Whereas in Bridgerton, if you're going to throw that out there, then you're going to follow up somehow. You yeah, have to. Well- the reason that Hamilton didn't need to explain it was twofold. Uh, first off, everybody in Hamilton is a person of color except for King George. Um, and secondly, who, you know, represents the English white and all that. And secondly, it is overtly a, you know, a hip hop and rap show. So it's, it, it, there's a real direct line there between this type of music, which comes from this culture. And that's why we're celebrating it. Yeah, that's that's the trouble with Bridgerton. And look, I agree with you. Again, it's entertaining. It is it is frothy. There's always some gowns to look at. Everybody's pretty. 
there's also, I would note, uh, there's not a huge range of body types, uh, with the exception of Nicola Coughlin, uh, who's from Dairy Girls, who's the, like, overtly the one non-beautiful person. Per the show, not per me. Nicola Coughlin is amazing, and so is her Twitter. Um, but there's no, there's no overtness about it. Uh, there's nothing that is specific to this alternate universe that lets us in on why everybody speaks the same way as they would. Yeah, sure. The music is like, there's orchestral versions of thank you next, but it's not, it's, it's got a foot in two worlds. It doesn't know, you know what, if it was an executive, if I was reading this script and it wasn't from, uh, Shondaland, uh, people would say it doesn't know what it wants to be. Mm hmm. Yeah. It doesn't know where it wants to be or it doesn't know what it wants to be or it doesn't know what it wants to say. Yeah. And those are those are like two good examples. The controversial sex scene and how it's cast and how uh, the casting is explained in the story-ish kind of, but not really. Um, and of course, the colorism that's, that's present in it. Yeah. The one thing that I will say, uh, which I hope doesn't sound like a defense, but knowing what we know about the kinds of shows that have come out of Shondaland in the past, and this is her first Netflix show, but like, she's no rookie. I have to wonder if the disconnect here is in the adaptation process, because everything else that we've seen out of Shondaland is an original story, right? Uh, often loosely based on real people. So I wonder if the if the mm. reason that we're running into this is the the juggling of um, all the storylines that people need to plant, and so well we have to have you know these characters be at the forefront in the beginning because of this that and the other reason. I, I don't I don't know. Like you could do it a whole different way. The Bridgerton family is full of all these great looking people who each have their own dramatic stories and whatnot. You could cast the whole family colorblind, right? Uh, multiracial, yeah. whatever. Play it that way. That's Hamilton styles. Yeah. Um, or you could make the the act of Queen Charlotte in yeah bestowing aristocracy on black families. You could make it an actual storyline that people are worried about keeping. Uh, because to your point, you're saying like this: uh, the idea that uh, you know. Simon's evil father wants somebody to carry on his name is like sort of understandable because it's given, you know, but because they put that want in the mouth of the most evil person on the show, it's hard to even know if it's real, if it counts, if we should pay attention, if we should care. Obviously, we as viewers in 2020 should care, but the show is not sure if we should care or the people who are characters in the show should care about that nobility conferred. So season two, I mean, I can't imagine that there's no season two. I, like, I think we're going to be here for a while. If there are eight books in this fucking thing, then it's going to keep going and going and going. So, yeah, something to look ahead to. Whether or not they retroactively correct or, you know, put into place some of the learnings of what they got wrong and how they – how they – readjust and realign given all this time. I mean, it's not like they're not going to get the feedback. I also wonder what it will be like for people like uh, me, and I assume you and many others of us who are now going to do it in reverse order 
and read the Bridgerton books and the offending scene in question after the fact and whether it colors your perspective of, of who those characters are or how we're supposed to see it. I'm already having a hard time reading and I tried this book and I couldn't get past like a chapter. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> so you, you go guys, ahead. <laughs> well, I'll try it out. If you are one of those people who was already a fan of the series before, or pardon me, of the book series before this came out on Netflix, tell us what, uh, what your thoughts are. Uh, if it, if you felt like we're always supposed to assume that this was, you know, Machiavellian Lady Macbethy on her part, uh, and it was just too innocently played. I'm very curious about how different perspectives play according to, uh, who's seeing it and, and when. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, so I have uh, what is probably the weirdest little segment here. I have something that is like half hum- humble brag and half retraction uh, to talk about. Uh, I was reading, um, I saw in Rolling Stone recently that they had a piece about how 2020 was the year of period blood on TV. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I was smug. I was like, yeah, Rolling Stone. I was talking about that like weeks ago. Uh, but then, of course, the thumbnail image and the first headline first talks about uh, the most famous maybe period blood of 2020, which we didn't mention uh, and which I didn't think of when I was pitching you the story. And that is, of course, uh, Arabella's uh, period clot in I May Destroy You. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to bring it up and mention it because it's that thing of you know, I thought we were talking about tweens and so maybe I didn't mention it or this or that, but like, is it the best and most dramatic one of the year? Yeah, it is. Is not mentioning it like one of the ways that sometimes we forget to, uh, not, you know, that we wound up centering 12 year old white girls in a conversation instead of, uh, you know, a really fully formed show about a black woman. Yeah. Huh. So I just wanted to point that out and say, uh, that's my half humble brag, half retraction. Uh, and it just reminds me also that if you did not watch, I may destroy you. If you thought it was too dark or too much, or that you weren't sure you could handle it, um, it is going to give you what you need, but also it's, it's, I think it's a surprising watch, and I definitely think everybody should uh, should check it out if you've been avoiding it up to this point. Well, I'll extend your humble brag for you because I did think of you. We just finished talking about Bridgerton. I did think about you in the scene in Bridgerton where Daphne gets her period when they go to the opera. And, you know, she shoves a napkin under her, what do you call it, petticoat? Sure, Whatever, yeah. her fucking skirts. Um, and she pulls out the white handkerchief and they not, 
like they don't just show like a smear of blood, but it's a, you know, it's a clumpy, it's a clumpy shot of blood. Like it's not just a little bit of red paint dotted the way that normally we see, you know, it could be like, uh, I don't know, you sneeze and there are a few droplets that come out of your nose. Like this is an actual clump. Um, right. It's not like the consumption napkin that we usually no. see in shows like this, right? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And this is during Regency times and, you know, obviously it's during a time when, of course, people didn't talk about, oh, they, they refer to it as courses, which I right. laugh all the time. Um, her courses come out um, and in this like prim proper time. Um, and I thought of you, I was like, oh, there, a period again in 2020. Another example of us being at the point where we can do a show that as, is as ostensibly proper um, as Bridgerton and see a, a young woman wipe herself and come out with clumpy red. Right. Because um, after she was carrying around a napkin full of cum, I mean, I guess they had to top that in the next episode. <laughs> um, so good point. Uh, so yeah, go back and, and watch all the things with period blood if you haven't already. Uh, what else do you want people to watch or read or do? Like, I really appreciate when you guys tell us that you like our recommendations because otherwise we're just nerds telling each other and we've already told each other like on text several times and on group chats and so forth. Um, so tell us some of the things you think people should should really consume in the last few days of the holidays. So I have said many times on the site that I haven't been able to read this year. It's just a... I call it Inlectio. So I think I've read a total of maybe five books. Sorry, um, what do you call it? Inlectio. I, um, excuse me. Let's break that down. Is that a, uh, have you created a Latin term for your, for your affliction? What is this? I came up with it. It's from insomnia, but instead of insomnia, Inlectio, Lectio from Lectare for reading. Excuse me. I love how you just <laughs> tossed that in. Like we all should know this vocab. Okay. Um, let's continue. Right. Anyway, so I actually haven't been able to read much. The books I do read are for like work. Um, literally the book club, uh, on our show. But, um, I will say that I, I'm, I, I think maybe at the end of the year now, I might be coming out of my Inlectio. I'm not sure. I don't really want to give that, make that declaration yet because it can always come back. And the book that got me out of it was like a book where for the first time this year, I kept reading, I, I kept thinking about it. I'm not sure because my barometer is off because of, you know, the lack of focus I've had this year. So I'm not really sure if this book is good, but I can say it kept me hooked. It's called White Ivy. Okay. Um, and Duanna, I actually think you should read it because White Ivy is written by Susie Yang. Um, it's about a Chinese-American uh, who grows up learning to lie and steal. Huh. Okay. It is um, a little bit the talented Mr. Ripley, a little gone girl. And it is 100% an immigrant story, also a thriller, uh, a very, very dark rom-com. What I like about it is the main character, Ivy, again, a Chinese-American woman, is basically tearing apart everything that we expect of, quote, the model minority. 
Okay. So like, in, for in starters, other words, she sucks at school. <laughs> right. And she's allowed to be bad, essentially. Yes? I'm not sure if she's allowed to be bad, but she allows herself to be bad. Right. Okay. Um, so that uh, is a book I finished very quickly this year and recently. Also, another book I read that just came into translation this year. So um, it, it's actually been out since um, 2016, but the English translation was just released uh, this uh, in 2020. And that's why a lot of uh, Western publications have been writing about it and it's, you know, showed up on many best lists and it deserves to be. It's Kim Ji Young, born 1982. Um, again, published in 2016 in Korea by Cho Nam Ju. Um, it is uh, so good, so insightful about cultural misogyny in Korea, but obviously because this is misogyny, it is applicable to any culture, any background. Um, the writing is spare. The story is sharp. It, it's, it's, it's really, really, really good. And what made you find it, uh, now? Like how did, how did you get here now? I got like here because… Like if it was released in 2016, you said, right? Yes. And I, I read about it, I think it was back in April or May in the New York Times because that's when it was released. The English translation was released earlier in the year. I read mm -hmm. about it in the New York Times um, and it was a really good article in the New York Times, I, if I remember correctly, that it was New York Times. And I was like, okay, I'm you, know, you know, back then it was the beginning-ish of the pandemic and all of us were like, okay, I'm going to read all the things. I'm going to read, read, read. So I put it on this list. And of course, uh, I fucking never ended up reading because I have the Inlectio. But after I finished White Ivy, um, I was like, okay, let me just see if I can keep reading. And I went back to my list and I was like, Kim Ji Young, born 1982, I'm going to give this one a try. And I also burned through it. Okay, amazing. I have no self-control, so I have uh, purchased both of those while you've been talking. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I'm really into that. That sounds great. And not that this matters and means anything, but Bong Joon-ho, who, you know, around this time last year is when we started, you and I started loving him, talking about him so much. Then we talked about him for three months straight, uh, during which time he won the Best Picture Oscar for Parasite. Bong Joon-ho read the book. You know, it's become highly recommended. It's highly recommended by all these artists, especially counterculture-ish artists coming out of South Korea who have bucked against, you know, the tradition there, the patriarchy, the class system, the misogyny. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, South Korea has done, has been recognized for many, many things, but this is still an East Asian culture. I come from an East Asian culture. There are many, many rigid institutional structures in societies in East Asia that are quite robust still, particularly around women. And um, the women's movement in South Korea is, I'm, I wouldn't say just beginning to pick up, but this book really incited, especially in South Korea, conversation among young women about what they've been told is their lot in life. Right, 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 right. And about the things that were so uh, defined that they almost didn't require talking about until now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, amazing. I love it. 
So those are the two books. What about you? Okay. Um, well, uh, my first recommendation is, uh, let's say not quite so highbrow, but it makes me, uh, very happy. Uh, I would say like my big pandemic realization is how uh, I can be, I can be lazy, uh, in non-pandemic times and how being trapped in my house has really kind of heightened that. And specifically my big hurdle, my entire life, but still a big hurdle is, uh, working out, finding the, the thing that you like, finding the time that makes it like worth it. Like why actually get up off the couch when you could just be on the couch? Uh, and I have discovered, uh, a, a YouTube channel and an associated person, um, uh, a guy whose name is Joseph Corella and he is five, six, seven Broadway. And he posts cardio workouts to go with musical theater. So on YouTube, without me looking hard, I can find uh, Cardio to Mean Girls, the musical, uh, Cardio to Six, the musical, uh, to Hamilton, to Mamma Mia, to- I saw this the other day and I was like, fuck, how come Duanna hasn't talked about this? And now I know you've been saving it. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then on his website, uh, again, this is not sponsored or anything unless they want to sponsor me, in which case you actually can live stream classes. Uh, like we're recording today on Monday and you can get into, uh, the combo is canned heat from center stage. Uh, <laughs> I E that whole sequence that happens when Jody goes to, uh, Cooper Nielsen's dance class downtown and that kind of thing. Uh, if there are, if you're like me and there are a lot of reasons why you find reasons to not go to a workout class and one of them is the like tss, tss, music or you're just not cool enough to have a Peloton or whatnot. I, I really like this as an alternative. Um, and I've only done some of the shorter YouTube segments. The, they're super fun. There's even one, uh, there's one on Wednesday, January 6th, uh, that is set to the music from Troop Beverly Hills as in the Shelley Long, uh, you know, iconic movie. So if you are me and just can't get into like hardcore electronica to pump you up, this may be your thing. Check it out. Okay. What else? Uh, and then I watched Voices of Fire, as I was mentioning earlier. Yeah. This is the, uh, this is a choir. We're going to create the best, most diverse gospel choir, says pastor, who's also Pharrell's uncle. Um, it's like the concept is amazing. The show is not perfect. And the songs are not sort of the like TV and movie sanctioned gospel that we think it's very much, uh, like choral church gospel, but that in itself makes it more interesting. This is a window into a subculture. There are so many people on this show who, you know, they kind of overtly do the thing where they're like, well, does this person have a, an American Idol style story that makes them worthy of being featured? Not everybody in the choir is featured, obviously, but it's, they kind of nod to it so they know they're doing it, but there's still some real compelling stories. Uh, and it's, it's really worth checking out, even though the show as like competition show is not, is not perfect in its rhythm. Uh, God, there is no more pure 
pure window into a different world. I strongly, strongly, I think there's only five episodes, which is a weird number. And I strongly uh, encourage everybody to check it out and then call me about Melvet and we'll join the Melvet fan club. Um, you got- okay. I'm up next. Um, if you want to continue the rom-com vibes, I'm always down for rom-coms. Um, I was recommended this by my uh, best friend, Fiona, who's like super into anything that comes from like Scandinavia. So she loves like, you know, the Scandinavian like mystery murder detective novels. You know, right. there's a whole fucking, there's a huge culture of like, they they, they just do the really great thrillers. Like the… Right. Um, anyway, so, but she's not a rom-com person, but she was the one who was like, hey, you should check out, because she knows I am a rom-com person. On Netflix, there's a Norwegian show called Home for Christmas, um, and it's, it's bingeable and it's manageable. Like, every episode is only half an hour. And here's the premise. It's very simple. A woman in her late 20s, maybe early 30s, I really didn't pay attention to how exactly how old she is, is, you know, obviously getting pressure from her family to be in a relationship. Yeah. So she has to fake a boyfriend. There. Sounds amazing. It's it's classic. It's classic. Tell us again what it's called. It is called Home for Christmas. Also easy to remember. It's from, again, it's a Norwegian TV series. There are two seasons now. But where? On Netflix? Uh, on Netflix, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, you reminded me, and I have not seen this one, but I, it piqued my interest. I was reading one of those articles. It was like, uh, what are the shows that showrunners watched this year? Uh, and Jason Kadams, uh, who, of course, is Friday Night Lights, is Parenthood, is uh, Rise, and is something else that I'm going to be embarrassed to have forgotten. Uh, he said, oh, I really love that Swedish show, Bonus Family which I had never heard of. Have you heard of this? No. Um, And it is, uh, basically the synopsis is, Lisa and Patrick, a couple in their 30s living in Stockholm, are each recently divorced from their ex-spouses. Both have 10-year-old sons and Lisa has a teenage daughter. Patrick's ex-wife, Katya, is an architect. Lisa's ex-husband, Martin, works at a bed retailer. It's basically, I guess, about the entanglements of having a blended family and how you don't leave behind your first family and so forth. It sounds to me a lot like uh, Once and Again, which uh, I lament not being available on streaming. That's uh, one of the first jobs Evan Rachel Wood ever had, and you can see how good she is even then. So I uh, I recommend this in the sense that I'm going to check it out because Jason Kadem said so, and I, I want you guys to try it too. So thank you for mentioning Home for Christmas because that reminded me of of bonus family. Okay, what else you got? Um, I I don't have a great book that I'm like deeply into in terms of like a fictional narrative book, but I'm loving a book called Take Back the Tray, uh, written by a Toronto chef uh, named Joshua Mirage about like all the things that are wrong with uh, hospital food and school food and prison food even and how it can be better and why it can be better. And it's just fascinating to learn things like that, for example, uh, you know, if nobody gives back, like if ever, basically like all the reasons why food is so shitty are partly because nothing can be recycled. So everything has to be full of preservatives. So blah, blah, blah. Whereas you're, you know, a restaurant, if 
nobody eats, if nobody orders the bread, they can turn it into stuffing the next day or et cetera. But you can't do that in a hospital. It's it's a really fascinating, compelling read. Strongly endorsed. That's, you know, I, did I tell you I used to work at a hospital? I and have I never to, known this about you. And I used to work in the kitchen. Okay, go on. So when all these things that people say about hospital food, I have only known the exact opposite. Like it was always confusing to me that there was this stereotype of hospital food being shitty because I got the job because several of my family members, my cousin Kat and I both worked at the hospital. And how old are you at this point? Um, Kat did it for two years Kat did it two years before I did. Um, so she, I think, started in high school. I started, I think, um, first year university or last yeah, okay. year of high school. So like, you know, 17, 18, 19-ish, right? Sure. And the reason why we got the job there is because um, we had several relatives who worked, had been working at the hospital in the kitchen food services department. Got it. For years. That was their full-time, like, li- like long, long, long-time job. And so mm-hmm. they ended up getting us the job as, at, like, for summer, you know, when we used to have summer jobs, right? Of course, yeah. It's just so, it's who you know on yeah. every level. Yeah. And to go back to the quality of the food, my aunt who worked there, who got us the jobs, um, she used to make the food. And… She used to, when there were leftovers, I don't know if like I'm supposed to say this now, but it was so long ago. When there were leftovers, she used to bring them home. Right. And on Sundays, it used to be ham and scalloped potatoes. And I used to like, I used to crush the leftovers. And then I started working there and I started like fucking standing in line for the leftovers. Like, you know, on break, we... I don't know if I was supposed to, but I ate the fucking food that, you know, that was made on my lunch break there. It was so good. Um, And so for you to say, take back the tray, like, I don't know what they're doing in other hospitals, but I do know that after a while, I guess the reason I can say this is because that hospital ended that program that had been around for decades and brought in other types of food. And I'm pretty sure it's inedible or like obviously not to the quality that we were fucking making. I wasn't, listen, I wasn't making the food in the kitchen. I'd be the deliverer. So the kitchen staff would put the food on trays and I'd be the one pushing carts up and down all the floors and delivering the food to patients. Right. So you got to see how people reacted. Yeah. But I mean, all I know is how I reacted. And I don't think I have a, like, you know, I have a, I don't. I, I'm not saying I eat, like, I do eat a lot of shitty food, but I'm telling you this food was so fucking good. I believe you. Um, and in case you're thinking that maybe this is going to sound, because it's dealing with, like, public places and whatever, that it's going to sound dry or whatnot, uh, I, I knew I wanted to read the book, but I was hooked at the point where the author said that as a chef, she has fired people for not bringing sandwich filling out to the edge of the sandwich bread. Yes. Right? Yes. I was Spread like, okay. to the edge. Spread Spread to to the the edge. edge. Yeah. She's like, I've fired people for that. And I'm like, oh, I'm in. You're the best. You can fire my husband because on, like, you know, on the occasion where I say to him, hey, can you make me some toast with cream cheese? I have to say spread to the edge because I don't know what he thinks. Well, I do understand. It's always an inch from the border. 
No, and that's def- double not okay during toast. The reason why in theory I think it might be okay during a sandwich is if you have a big chunky filling, like say, I don't know, like a, a tuna salad or an egg salad or something, and you think that the pressing of the sandwich when you lift it up with your hand is mm-hmm. going to like press it out to the edge and otherwise it would spill out. That's what, I don't agree with it. I think that's probably people's logic is all I'm right. saying. Yeah. Um, and why they might underfill, but on toast, it's absolutely unacceptable. Okay. So take back the tray. I like that. All right. And I will say that for people who are always asking me, what uh, Korean drama are you into right now? Right now, I just started watching, it's on Netflix. It's called Love Struck in the City. There have only been two episodes. I am obsessed. <laughs> already. So if that, I don't know how I'm going to like it when I, it went by the time it finishes, but that to answer your question, Love Struck in the City is what I'm trying to watch right now, but I'm pissed off because they only release two new episodes a week. But isn't that okay? Because you wrote something the, the other day that said something to the effect of, uh, they have way too many episodes in these series. Those are Chinese dramas. I see. Like fucking 50 episodes. Whereas Korean dramas are really good. They're either 13 or 16 or whatever. They know their limits. Chinese people do not. Well, uh, my (laughs) my apologies for conflating them. Um, I'm going to be, speaking of too many episodes, uh, I'm going to start a Felicity rewatch or just a watch actually because I only really kind of dipped in and out uh, in previous years. Uh, so I already have a number of thoughts about how this person is absolutely batshit and how they were able to create a show around her for four years. So, uh, if anybody wants to come along with me there, uh, it's, it's so far, it's very rewarding. I'm six episodes in and I'm delighted. And finally, music. We haven't hit on music. Um, I am so into Rina Sawayama right now. Um, Rina Sawayama is British. Um, her album that was released this week, um, which, you know, I got into it because I was reading all like the best, um, the whatever, best of 2020 lists. And I saw that she kept coming up her album kept coming up um, and her name kept coming up on like, I don't know, it was Pitchfork and I think, I think NPR. And I was like, okay, I've got it. Like, and then my, one of my like music gurus is Liz Trenier, who I work with on eTalk. And so I was like, okay, I gotta, I've got to check out Rina Sawayama. So um, her album, Pitchfork described her vibe as, I mean, I don't want to, Anyway, I'll just I'll just I'll just talk about I'll just um say their opening sentence in their review. Um, it's as reverent of Evanescence and Corn as it is of Britney and Christina. Um, right? okay. I I don't know. Sold? Am I into that? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Sold. Um, how about this? In in Pitchfork, still the review, Duanna. Um. Sawayama, that's the name of the album. Her debut album after years of retromaniac singles does for Y2K pop what Hulu's Pen15 did for Y2K middle school. How about that? There you go. Okay. I'm into that. Amazing. Her sound is all over the place. Like there are some very experimental songs on here. There are some very poppy songs. There are some like grungy metal songs. 
She's super interesting. Her lyrics are amazing. I fucking love her. And uh, that would be my recommendation on music. Rina Sawayama. Okay. Um, mine is I've just discovered recently, and I think I'm like I'm probably a little late to the game, but not that much because uh, there's been a remix. But uh, I discovered any uh, E N N Y. She is a uh, UK rapper. Uh, I want to say from South London, uh, and the song that she sang, uh, her kind of famous song, uh, is called "Peng Black Girls." P E N G. Hang Black Girls, uh, and she is one of those rappers who it feels like spoken word poetry, kind of, uh, and it's very casual, her style and her delivery. Uh, the remix of Hang Black Girls features Georgia, uh, spelled J-O-R-J-A, who uh, I did not know, but now know, and it's just one of those things that is, uh, it's just a beautiful blend of voices. I really love the wordplay. Uh, she has another track called He's Not Into You that uh, I love, but I haven't memorized to the same degree as Peng Black Girls yet. Um, so it's been my, like, it's almost meditative how much I, you know, when you find something new in the song every time you listen to it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm deep into any and uh, I uh, I want to find out more. I'm like, I'm an any super fan all of a sudden. Okay. Well, I mean, we could keep going. Uh, I mean, Basically, listen. it's just become a list of the things we've <laughs> we love. Um, but in the interest of time, let us know what you think of these wrecks. Yeah, or you know which ones we should be paying attention to. What uh, what else you want us to consume? Because God knows we're good at that. And finally, and finally, and finally, we just wanted to read a note that we received from. A regular listener, uh, we'll call them MG. Mm-hmm. Uh, MG also sent us a photo. It's a very impressive photo. So it's she's, very shiny. Uh, she starts by saying, uh, I wish I could find the Show Your Work episode where you talked about what are you going to do when you have the opportunity to step up to bat. Uh, I remember us talking about at-bats, that the better you get is when you have more opportunities to try and again. And she says, but I remember thinking, quote, I never get any plate appearances. That, of course, is not true, but it's just me complaining to myself about the lack of opportunities for good assignments. So that's sort of part one. And then part two, she says, So this past year, I created my own opportunities and showed my work. Probably the best year of my career. Help that we had different leadership that created an environment to put yourself out there, but it was up to me to do the work. Anyway, got this in the mail yesterday. Thank you both. Keep crushing it. Merry Christmas. And then <laughs> she then there's a photo. A photo. Then there's a photo of this, the this that she got in the mail. Which hilariously she refers to. Anyway, got this in the mail yesterday. And then her P.S. references the, the watch that she's wearing, which is a swatch from 1986. Hilarious. She got it when she was a teenager. But, of course, the main attraction of the photo is a statue. Uh, yeah, a statue that she's holding, uh, an award that she's holding, which is why we can see the swatch watch. Should we just tell them? MG low-key yeah. sent us a picture of her Emmy Award. 
that she won. Yeah. So um, we wanted to include this uh, because obviously we want to congratulate MG for, you know, to continue the metaphor, stepping up to the plate and hitting a grand slam. And that do we have when- that's baseball talk. I thank you. Thank you for that. I listen. If if pressed and somebody said what is a grand slam, I would say I think it's a breakfast at Denny's. But anyway. <laughs> it's not to say that every time you decide to take uh your work life into your own hands that you will or even should or have to win an award, but it is a great great reminder that when you start to do stuff and try stuff, there's there's no kind of imagining what can happen. So um, a cheers to you, MG, even though, as we all know, 2020 has been a fuck. Um, so happy that you decided to step up to the plate in 2020 um, and create... And do your thing and win an Emmy. Unbelievable. Um, And thank you so much for listening. And thank you to all of you who have sent us notes uh, all time, but especially this year, saying that the podcast was helping, saying that you were listening to it during quarantine, because we are like anybody else. We're we're self-obsessed and uh, need (laughs) feedback. Um, and it, but it really, really helps to go like, oh, okay. It's not just going out there into the ether. There are people who are listening, who care about what we said, uh, who make it worth it to, you know, find some new topics, especially in a time when there hasn't been traditional entertainment news. So we really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for, uh, sending us your thoughts, your suggestions. Please continue to do so. We will be back in the new year hopefully a better year. Um, we will be back to work in 2021. In the meantime, stay safe, work hard, but maybe not too hard. Maybe this is the one episode we can say, no, 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 just yeah, lie down. Your foot off. Yeah. You have earned it. Absolutely. <laughs> what, what, what was it to go back to Shonda Rhimes? Veal? Veal practice. Yeah, yeah. Work on some veal practice. Work on some veal practice. We'll be back soon. Uh, check us out wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe, leave comments. Thank you so much again. And, uh, Next year. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.